Before we get going, let me pray for us. Our Father, we pray this morning as we come into your house and uh, come to learn more about you in this hour, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and see the treasures in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans is a commentary of all scripture. It addresses the fall, the history of Israel, the death and resurrection, and and more importantly, what it all means. It's a condensed, systematic theology. Um, It's, I think, a keystone for understanding all of Scripture. And in Romans, there's some 60-plus references in the Old Testament, so you'll see uh, a lot of uh, quotes in Romans plus a lot of echoes, which are not direct uh, citations of Scripture, but echoes of uh, themes and so forth. If I could only, you know, you've all probably heard the uh, you know, question, if, if you could have one book, you're on a desert island you're by yourself, what would you pick? Well, for me, it would be the book of Romans, um, because it is core theology. Uh, there's no book like it. You know, Paul and his other books will address various issues, you know, like uh, in Galatians, they had the Judaizers uh, causing an issue, and and, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to deal with uh, men sleeping with their mother-in-laws and all that, but in Romans, he gets right to it. He hits it head on, and how man and God relate to each other. By the way, you know, Speaking of relationships, uh, everyone has a relationship with God. Uh, you know, I've heard people say that the key Christianity is about a relationship. Well, everyone has a relationship with God. The problem is, or the question is, is it a good relationship or not a good relationship? And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, Romans answers the most important questions in life, or, and particularly the most important question of life. And that is, how can a sinful man relate or stand before a perfect God? It answers that key question. And uh, that is our biggest problem. Now, I often forget that that is my biggest problem. I tend to think sometimes that my finances is my biggest problem. Uh, my relationship with my uh, boss is my biggest problem. My health is my biggest problem. I forget that our number one issue, the biggest problem we have is how we stand before God. Romans is going to answer that. In other words, Paul in this book prepares us to die. And, you know, and we're in a season now where we're going to be looking at a senior pastor. And anytime uh, we hire a pastor, that should be something that we we look for very seriously is, are you going to prepare us to die? Because that should be their number one mission, because it's the statistics last I heard were pretty close to 100%. There's Enoch and uh, Elijah, I guess, or the aberrations of that. But it's pretty certain that that's going to come, and we need to be prepared. That's, that's the most vital thing any pastor can do is prepare us to die. And this book does that. 
If you like the way your life is, then I encourage you not to read Romans because it can totally disrupt and and change your paradigm, rearrange your furniture. Uh, So it has the power to shake up your life. And we're going to learn a lot of things. And and this is all introductory because I didn't have a chance the last two weeks. But uh, we're going to learn about law and gospel, the distinction of what the law is and the gospel. We're going to learn about justification and uh, sanctification, propitiation, imputation, a lot of these big Christian words we're going to dive into. But these are biblical words, and they're important that we, we, we don't need to apologize for using these words. Um, and if you're a lawyer if, or a lawyer type, you're going to love the book of Romans because Romans is very for, forensic. It's, um, we're going to talk about the law and the problem of the law. We'll learn what it means to be justified. And and most importantly, we'll learn how to deal with our sin. Uh, that's a very important thing. So Paul, not in today's text, but in the last, uh, last week, we looked how Paul opened this letter. He can hardly say hello without getting right to the gospel. He is, um, goes straight to explaining the gospel. And he, he's speaking in Rome to an established church. It's been around a while, so Paul doesn't say, well, yeah, you got the gospel, now you're a Christian. Let's go on to more mature things, more important things, like how to manage your money godly way and and, uh, how to raise godly kids, all that. No, he goes right to the gospel. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome because that is the power. And so the the point is Christians need the gospel. Um, It's not something we lay aside once we are redeemed, but we have to have it preached over and over to us. Um, So it's not just to get saved and so forth. You know, um, so that's an overview of where we're going. So last week we looked at, we talked about the gospel, and I want to just go back and define our terms. What is the gospel? We cannot answer that uh, often enough. We need to get it. And the gospel is an announcement, the announcement of what God has done through the person and work of Christ to save sinners. Um, And it's good news. And we often forget that that news component. Uh, Hear ye, hear ye. uh, Listen to this. Um, it has that connotation. I remember seeing newspapers that um, in World War II, the font was like 150. War over. It's a proclamation of something that has happened outside of us. The gospel is not within us. It is something, as Luther said, extra nos. Um, it's not good advice. It's news. It's a herald, you know, hark the herald angels sing. The angels are announcing the birth of Christ. Paul in this book is announcing and proclaiming what the gospel is, what the news is. You know, back in in, uh, biblical days, uh, it was very different from today. The news came through a runner uh, where someone uh, would be coming back from the war or from the battle and have one of two stories. Uh, we, we won the war, and the spoils are coming behind me. It's going to be a big party. All the, we, we got the booty coming on our heels. Or 
we, are, we lost, and you better get out of here fast, tuck tail and run, because they're coming on my heels af- after us to burn the city down and loot it. So uh, that was, uh, news was very important then, and it still is. <clears throat> uh, you know, last week, uh, Jim said, well, what, how do you compress the gospel into three words? And he said, the, the good definition of the gospel is God saves sinners. I want to submit to you in four words. If you only had four words to describe the gospel, Paul does it very nicely for us. In chapter 4, verse 5, when he says, God justifies the wicked. And that is, that is uh, to me, I'm not one who would, um, is enamored with ink on my body. But if I were, that is exactly what I would have tatted on my, actually on my left hand, God justifies the wicked. To remind me as I'm driving around that God justifies the wicked. Um, and we want to say, hey, Paul, no, you flip that. God justifies the righteous. You know, no, no I meant what I said, Paul says. I, God justifies the wicked. Let that sink in. Do you qualify? I know I do. It's not, he did not come to save the righteous, but only those who were sick know they need a physician. So here's why I love the book of Romans. Uh, when I was growing up, I, uh, my mom catechized me, and uh, so I had some spiritual training. But I remember watching Billy Graham, and every time I did, numerous times I would watch Billy Graham on the sofa on TV. Our family would, like many of y'all, perhaps, I'm sure. And I would resolve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better person, and I, I'm going to obey the law, uh, unlike yesterday. Today. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a better person. That was my mindset after watching Billy Graham. Well, that lasted to about 10 o'clock, if that long, the next day. I just was numerous times did that. Um, but the verse that haunted me was Matthew 5, 48, uh, that says, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Be ye perfect, therefore, for your heavenly Father is perfect. And that command that he commanded haunted me because I knew that God was holy and just. And at the same time, I couldn't pull it off, which leads to a question. It raises the question, does God command something that we cannot do? He can and he does. Um, And so... You know, perfection is a pretty high standard, and he, he demands that of us. But what God demands, he gives us in Christ. That's coming later in the gospel. But um, that was uh, because of God's holiness and justice. He will not allow one single sin, even a small sin. Of course, there really are no small sins in his sight, uh, into his heaven, and that's the problem. Martin Luther was acutely aware of this problem. Um, Martin Luther, who's one of my heroes, was absolutely terrified uh, by the righteousness of God. And in today's standards, he would be deemed very neurotic. He had a a very acute awareness of the righteousness of God. You know, whereas Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Martin Luther was a monk of all monkery. He, He was the consummate monk. 
Uh, he drove his mentor Stoppitz absolutely crazy um, with his monkey. With, with he would confess and he uh, for hours. Whereas most uh, students in the, the monastery would confess for you know maybe thirty minutes. He would go hours and hours. And then when he would on his way out of the he would he would think, oh I forgot to confess such and such and he'd run back and confess more. It drove Stompitz absolutely crazy. Fortunately, Stompitz was very patient with with uh, Luther, and um, but it was a uh, uh, the way he was wired. Uh, he got it, and he would do things kind of crazy, like sleep in the snow to buffet his body. He would wear burlap clothes to you know let's like look what i've done god he he had this mentality as many in that era in roman catholicism did that you have to earn your salvation and prove your worth to god so he um he read about the righteousness of this judge who damns sinners and it just tormented him cuz he knew he didn't meet that standard in fact he would say love god Sometimes I hate him. He hated that righteousness of God because it was condemnation to him. But Luther rightly had a good or a, um, a accurate uh, view of God's holiness and justice. Um, would that we had that same neuropathy—not uh, neuropathy, neuroticism. Um, <laughs> he might have had neuropathy too. He had a lot of issues. Um, so. It was his meditation on Romans 1, 17 that uh, we looked at last week. The righteous shall live by faith, which, of course, is taken from Habakkuk. When he realized that the gospel and the instrument of faith that opens the door to the gospel um, is the key. And he, he wrote that it was that though the doors of paradise were flung wide open when he understood that. So he got it when he realized that perfect righteousness is an alien righteousness, not his righteousness, but one outside of himself. So until, and one of the themes of this morning is until we understand the depth of our sinfulness, the gospel will never be sweet to us. It's, it's that depth of awareness that makes the gospel such good news. The bad news is, of course, that God is holy and righteous, and we are not righteous. It's very fundamental. So it's my prayer as we study Romans that um, if it hasn't already for you, that the doors of paradise would open after seeing the depth and the exceeding sinfulness of your sin, and that paradise would open before you as well. Now, with that long introduction, <clears throat> are you ready to get down and dirty? Because that's what we're going to do. Uh, Romans, this section of Romans from, we, we begin today from 1, chapter 1, 18 until 3, chapter 3, verse 20, is the theme uh, Paul parks here for quite a while is that the, the radical corruption of sin. But our text this morning, it, we're looking at Romans 1, 18 through 32. Now, Paul is first going to turn his guns on the, those Gentiles is the theme of this passage today. So we're going to look at these verses. Uh, let's get right into it and look at them. So the first 
look at verse 18, and rather than read the passage, I'm going to do it as we go along. We should cover the whole text here. Uh, Romans uh, 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That word for is there, kind of means because. And in the thesis statement, he told us he was eager to preach the gospel to everybody. Now he's going to tell us why he's eager. And his gospel, Paul's gospel, doesn't start with the love of God. He, he sets the pattern of sharing the gospel. It starts with the wrath of God. Um, hint, hint, we might ought to do the same. <laughs> uh, it start with creation and the wrath, as Paul does in this, this chapter. Go on, Fly, I didn't invite you. <clears throat> um, so, as any uh, good pig fester would do, let's define our terms. What is wrath? Simply put, it's divine displeasure. Um, so, why is God so uptight? Did he get, it, get up off on the wrong side of the bed? Why is it that, um, why can't he just forgive us is, is a question here, right? Um, and the reason he can't, of course, is his justice demands every single sin to be punished. He's not going to, on judgment day, say to anyone, uh, yeah, you made a few mistakes, but wink, wink, come on in, crazy guy. No, his, his justice demands absolute perfection. And so when we think of wrath, we think you know of human wrath where it's often just temporal or a passion of, of uh, anger. Something triggers us, we fly off the handle, but... Uh, with God, his wrath is very different. And I like, I wrote down John Murray's definition of God's wrath. He, he says, the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Revulsion is a very strong word. It's like repugnant. It absolutely, anything that's contrary to his, his being is... Uh, uh, God has a revulsion too. Let me read that again. The holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath can be a good thing, a right thing. If, um, if I were to go pick on one of your children out here, or grandchildren, um, it would probably make you angry if I were bullying them. It, it's not all a bad thing, and, and that's the nature of, somewhat of God. When, when God is wrathful, he is passionate for his beloved. And so wrath can be a very positive, there can be the pos, positive element of it. Um, so, but there's a huge gap between how we see our sin and how God sees it. We see it as an inch, maybe. God sees our sin like the Grand Canyon. And, and in reality, it's infinite. Uh, our sin is infinitely, we have infinitely uh, transgressed against and offended a holy God. So note that in the, the word in here, it says is being revealed. He is continually, right now, in the present, wrathful against the unrighteous. He's, God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And because he's patient, though, he, his wrath doesn't always, uh, judgment doesn't come immediately. He doesn't immediately squash us. But um, his wrath is like the pressure building up in the, on a dam. Eventually, it's going to break. But we see his, he's very long-suffering. And so the word ungodliness here is uh, referring to our attitude toward God. It's the, the, with the first table of the law in mind here, the first four commandments, how we have um, not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second um, word there, unrighteousness, is more the idea of our relationship toward others. So we have fallen, we've missed the mark very greatly, both vertically and horizontally, both in the first and second table of the law. So let's look at uh, further at verse 18. Uh, the second part, it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, suppress has the idea of um, push, pushing down or holding something down. Think of a ball in the water. We, you know, if you're in the pool and you've got a big old beach ball, trying to keep it under. Our sin dulls our senses to the truth about who God is and what he has done. And we try to suppress it. Uh, it often will, it, it has a way of popping up every now and then, though. But um, he says in verse 19, for what? Uh, verse 19, Dorothy. Oh, it is. Well, you still got it highlighted on 18. The bold. Next slide. Um, got to get my personal assistant in line here. <laughs> Her pay is, is, you know, she's getting paid really well for this. Uh, I hadn't told you what it is yet, but anyway. Um, so what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The ultimate problem is not ignorance um, or not enough revelation because every day, uh, every time we get revelation, we don't use it properly. Uh, so they use it. And when I say they, he's primarily talking about the Gentiles, as I said, but it's also us. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not ignorance. You know, when someone says they're an atheist, um, I, I'm, my approach now when somebody says that, and this doesn't happen often, but I say, you know, I know you said you're an atheist, but I don't believe it. Deep down inside, in the depths of your heart, you know there's a God, and you're just suppressing him. Um, and I do it too, I, even though I believe in God. I, um, every day, suppress the truth because I want to live life autonomously, my way, not what God says. So, in, in some sense, even we believers are, are guilty of this suppression, but he's really addressing all this, per, particularly to the Gentiles. Um, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We need to lose this idea that um, the, the folks in maybe the mountains of South America who have never heard 
about Jesus are uh, innocent and uh, they're the only ones without excuse. No, they're, we're all accountable because all, everyone has seen God manifest himself through nature and creation. Um, and this, this answers that question about what, are, what about the people that have never heard? Well, Paul says there are no such people. Everyone knows that there's a God, regardless of what we or they tell ourselves or themselves, uh, because God, as it says here, has made it plain. The problem is when we get general revelation, uh, we tend to spin it into a way that shows us not so, in our not so desperate, make us not so desperate, our condition before God deserving his wrath. So that person uh, who has never heard of Jesus will not be judged because they've never heard Jesus. They'll be judged because they fail to acknowledge that there is a creator and because they know from creation, from all the uh, natural world, they should know that. And that's how God will judge them, all of us. Um, have been given that because the law is written on our hearts. You do not have to tell a young toddler that it's wrong to steal. Uh, it's really interesting. This past week, I was keeping um, my grand, three of my grandkids while mom and dad got out, and uh, Magnolia, who is now one and a half, I think one and something like that. She's not. She's between one and two. You know, I've always thought, I'm looking for, uh, she's just so adorable, so sweet. I haven't seen any, anything real, uh, remotely looking like sin in her yet until this week. <laughs> and I said, Magnolia, what have you got in your mouth? And she got quiet. She had something in her mouth. I was a little concerned. She, you know, it's too small for her. And so she knew that it was wrong. I could tell she knew it was wrong. And she kind of walked in the other room and... Um, you know, it, that was the first kind of incident I saw of her little, uh, the viper and diaper kind of thing going on there. Uh, she, she, she has built into her, we all have built into her that the law um, is in our hearts. You, um, and you particularly see it with kids if um, they know they shouldn't take toy from their brother or sister. And uh, uh and they particularly know when they get it taken from them that it's not right. Right. So, um, the law is written in our hearts. So, getting off the flow of uh, Paul's argument here in a little bit, I wanted to point out that this passage is where we get uh, our many uh, base their apologetics on. And apologetics... Or is simply the idea of uh, defending the gospel. Uh, you know, Paul said, make a defense. Be ready always to make a defense. I always, my sister had the hardest time with that word. She said, I, we shouldn't apologize for our faith. I said, no, no, no. It, it doesn't mean apologize. It means basically a defense. But um, in your, if you got a handout, I printed out. Um, well, first, if uh, Dorothy, if you well, you have in front of you, if you got the outline, um, I put in here the uh, difference between general and um, specific or, or special revelation. Also, uh, in the outline, I'll, I have a little blurb of the 
contrast of the apologetic positions. And if, if in this handout you'll see, um, there are basically three major approaches, if you will, of how to defend the idea, the, de- the existence of God. And I, I think all are helpful. I tend to be in the presuppositional camp. I think that makes the most sense. But uh, this is uh, there for you if you want to uh, look at it. It's no extra charge. It's uh, a little gravy on the biscuit there for you. But that's what that, this passage is where many will go when they um, are in defense of God's existence. It gives you the framework of, um, and also just talking a little bit about general and special revelation, I've referred to it already a couple of times. In your handout, you'll see, um, Boo, will you hand me the outline? I I thought I had a copy. Oh, it is? Mm -hmm. You've earned your key. Thank you. (laughs) So, uh, general... The difference, general or natural revelation, is through the natural world. It gives evidence of a creator making man without excuse because our fallen hearts and minds suppress the truth. It makes us culpable or responsible, but it cannot save. Special revelation is God revealing the truth of salvation through faith in, in Christ through his voice, i.e., the Holy Scriptures. Now, one thing I forgot to put here, and I should, you might want to write this in. It's very important. It's critical. And not only the scriptures, but the actual life and death and resurrection of Christ. Christ was the word made flesh, of course, incarnate. So we get special revelation. And that does have the power of saving us, unlike uh, general or natural creation. Uh, that's, as we say, the gospel, that's where the power is. So that's, that's where it's this, these passages here are very rich in both uh, apologetic thought and uh, the idea of the distinction between general revelation, which we all have, everybody has on the planet, versus special revelation, which we need and to, uh, that God uses as the means of quickening and regenerating us. But as you... Um, we refuse to ne- and neglect to thank the Creator. That's coming up in the next verse. Let's move on to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, or futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, last night I asked Siri, Siri uh, not Siri, Alexa, how do you define Futile, and she said futile. She didn't call it futile. I always said futile. Anyway, she uh, gave a, the definition, and uh, it's it's basically it means meaningless. And um, uh, so they they became futile because they underestimate the effects of the fall, and um, and nor do they. And, and notice it says or give thanks to him. General revelation should make all of us be thankful in heart. Um, but we, we aren't, and I say we, it's not just the heathen. We, uh, 
instead of being thankful for the rain, we'll complain that the sun's not out like yesterday maybe. Um, it, it, you know, it annoys me that I, my, on the weekend it has to rain all day. We get annoyed with things like that. Yet we should constantly be filled with gratitude. So we miss the mark. General revelation shows us that in, in these verses. And we underestimate the, the uh, noetic effects of the fall, meaning you know, that's our minds are corrupted. Uh, I like to think when we get to heaven, um, we're all going to have IQs exceeding Einstein. Um, uh, it, sin corrupts us thoroughly, uh, both mind, body, and soul. But we should have gratitude. Adam should have had gratitude. He had all he needed uh, in the natural. He didn't have, by the way, he didn't have special relation, uh, revelation yet because he didn't, didn't need it. Uh, redemption wasn't a, uh, a category yet Bef- until the fall. You don't need salvation if you're sinless and you've got a perfect world um so it came not it wasn't until the fall and yet there's some very high iq people who have gotten it so wrong brilliant um jean paul sartre john stuart mill frederick nietzsche among others nietzsche being the father of nihilism nihilism and uh paul tells us here that they're like everyone's foolish hearts are darkened. It's a heart thing. Not They may be brilliant, but the heart's where it counts, of course. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And the fool is wicked, again, because he denies what nature shows him to be true. Look at uh, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they don't just necessarily become atheists. They become idolaters. Uh, Idolatry is the focus here. Um, We tend to become religious worshiping creation instead of it pointing to the creator, we tend to take things and exchange them for um, the glory of God into uh, worship of images. Uh, We saw that right after Sinai, the the golden calf. Um, It reminds me of the the whole thing behind totem poles, you know, where they have animals. Um, You know, in, in certain cultures, they will put an animal on a stick and raise it up. And cultures and and people groups who say they may see themselves as a very strong people. They'll put a picture of an ox. They'll take an ox and put it on the pole, right? And and then worship it. Or uh, take some, a a group that may think they're very wise. What will they put on the pole? They'll put an owl and they look to it. So it shows in essence, they're worshiping themselves. Uh, we think we're very wise, so we, we'll worship ourselves. That's the idea, idea here in verse 22 and 23. Um, all religions outside of Christianity are just counterfeits, and um, they are false religions. Now, that, that's, uh, you say that in certain circles, you're going to get a lot of criticism, but it's true. Uh, the world hates the exclusivity of, of our gospel and that Christ is the only door to salvation. So 
in verse 24, here we see the first uh, mention of the phrase, gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. And note, you can't exchange something, this exchange he's talking about here, unless you have something. I can't give you uh, something and get something back unless I have something to give you. So they had, they know, again, everyone has the knowledge of God. Um, And even as believers, we tend to worship the gifts more than the giver. So there's an exchange that we still engage in as believers. It's not just something that the, the heathen do. Um, I know I'm guilty of that. So here we get the idea that giving up, God lets, the, lets wicked people get what they want. Their desires, okay, you, you desire that. The, he reaches a point to where he says, he just lets them go. Um, the, um, if you look in Revelation 22, 11, that reflects this judgment very well. It says, and this is at the end of the book of the Bible, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. And so there's this, the theme here is if uh, when, when we go down the path of wickedness, there reaches a point where God says he just takes off all restraints. Um, it's, it's like if I said, hey, David, uh, will you go turn on the dark? Nobody says that. I, I wouldn't say turn on the dark switch. You'd say turn off the light switch. By default, if you take the absence of light, it's gonna, it, it just leads darkness. And that's the idea here. God gave them up to themselves. Um, he lets the wicked people have what they want. And 26, for this reason, why? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul says that we suppress the truth even in our sexual relationships, um, in verse 26, 27, exchanging those natural sexual relations. Now, Paul doesn't single out homosexuality here uh, because it's the worst sin. Um, he singles it out because that is, is one of the most obvious examples of being contrary to nature. Um, it just isn't the way things work. Uh, not to get too blunt, but the, the puzzle doesn't fit. And, and you don't have to be a Christian to recognize this. It's um, totally not in accordance with the natural world. And it's also the first sin in, in, his, in, in this passage that he spends some time on. And, and he spends a lot of time on it because homosexuality is a direct assault on the image of God. Uh, there's clear echoes here in, the, in these passages from Genesis where, as we know, God made 
man, male and female, man and wife, a man and woman in the garden, uh, who in Christ his bride in the church. He, he, marriage is a very uh, important concept, and, and it, people, homosexuality is an attack on that or a clear aberration from the, what God set up as the, in his image. And so I think that's why Paul spends uh, quite a bit of time on that particular sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, as many, I think, incorrectly interpret this passage when he says he gave them up. There's a sense of that, but that, I think, is a, uh, there's always hope for all sin, all sinners, including homosexuality. And, um, but with the most natural thing when we're talking about sexuality is clearly... Um, you don't need it without any special revelation. Uh, we know that um, heterosexuality is the most natural thing. Hang on, hang on. Uh, we hand me the mic. Uh, it, I can talk loud. All right, talk real loud. Also, this particular topic is distinctive and special because marriage is a picture of the gospel, and the gospel is a picture of marriage, and that theme is throughout the New and Old Testament. And so once you disrupt that, there's no hope. So if, if, you, if you go down this road and you follow this lifestyle, you, you almost don't understand the gospel. So it's, you know, it's... It's terrible corruption, and so um, it's so fundamental. Right on. For that reason, God hates it because it it destroys the gospel. Yep. Right on. Um, Let's look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. We see that phrase again. To me, that's one of the most um, sobering phrases in the Bible. God gave them up. Gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the third time that Paul uses that phrase, gave them up. Um, Things would be a whole lot worse than they are now if it were not for God's restraining common grace on the world. Um, At some point, um, it alludes here that the, the wickedness, the sin... That downward spiral is going to intensify. When God lets, lets a sinner go, when he gives them up, it's, it, it, the natural result is darkness and uh, the depth gets deeper and deeper. Um, we all benefit from that common grace of God's restraint. Um, so he says, let, let's let them do what they want. And, uh, and that in itself is part of the judgment. That's, that's God's judgment. You're, um, you're going to reap, of course, the consequences for your sin. And then in verse 29, he, make, he, lists, he starts listing a bunch of sins that are going to make the whole, the whole church uncomfortable, um, including us that are heterosexual. Uh, he says in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covenantous, Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, 
disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You'll hear, you've heard Neil over the years, when he prays, he often, he has that memorized, obviously, he, he lists all those things. And that's not, that's not the comprehensive list. I think it's um, uh, some other, I can't remember the book, but he has another long list somewhere, Paul does, of, uh, that are different from these. Yes, uh, I think it, that's right. It's in Timothy where he, he has another diatribe of that. First Corinthians six. Okay, um, so uh, these, these, at least some of these, and if not all of them, nail all of us, right? You know, you've heard people say, "Well, God gave AIDS to judge homosexuals, the, the sin of homosexuality." And uh, I've heard somebody to come back to that. Well, if that's if he does that sort of thing, if he if he were to give out diseases for gossip and backbiting, the whole church would be empty. We'd all have you know, it's it's not unique to homosexuality that uh, uh, there are, we're all we've all adulterated ourselves. So, <clears throat> but. <clears throat> God, uh, it would be worse if he doesn't restrain, but as I said earlier, God is patient and long-suffering. And uh, so in, in, this, um, in this list, I know I'm guilty of many of these things. And, you know, one of them, just to highlight one of these phrases, haters of God. You may not think of me as a hater of God. You may not think of yourself as a hater of God. And yet, I think it, there's some truth to any time I sin, and I, I am hating God. In that moment, I am engaging in unbelief, clearly. Uh, I don't believe when I'm the gospel when I am engaging in sin. So it's, I think all of these are kind of universal to all of them. Some of them are going to uh, strike disobedient parents. I was so brutal with my mother, particularly. I, I just reg- have so many regrets when I was a teenager. Uh, all these, many of these, I envy. I don't, haven't killed anybody, but I've definitely been angry at that guy that cut me off last week and wanted to kill him at times. Those kind of things. We're all guilty of these. So um, all sin is a result of our unbelief. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree those that those who practice things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them um, we could go on here how all religions besides Christianity are basically law based uh, perversions of the truth um, Immanuel Kant the famous philosopher of the enlightenment said uh, the older I get the more I realize there are only two principles, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Notice in here he says the phrase, deserve to die. Those who practice these things deserve to die. Now back um, in 1964, I was 10 years old. Let's suppose, just hypothetically, uh, I talked back to my mother that one incident when I was 10 years old. Uh, that's laughable to think it was only one. But um, just hypothetically, I, I spoke an unkind word to my mother. All right, so, and that was the only sin I ever committed in my whole life to this point. 
All right? That's the, the scenario. Scripture teaches that in that case, with that one act of cosmic treason, of disobeying the fifth commandment, that I deserve to die, that I should be eternally punished in hell forever. Now, does that sound a little extreme to you? It does to me. Um, which tells me that I do not have the right attitude, like maybe Luther was closer to it, of realizing the absolute depth of my sin. James 2.10 uh, says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That one sin, I might as well have broken all Ten Commandments, which I have. So here's the problem. It troubles me um, that I know that's true, but my heart, in my head I know it's true, but in my heart, like I said, I have a problem with that. It just seems extreme. And I, I don't take our, we don't take our sin as seriously as we should. Um, in fact, I'm more concerned when it comes to my sin, I'm more concerned that it will make me look bad in front of others than I am that it offends God. Um, that's, to be honest, that's uh, because God is pure and holy and righteous. I do not have the, the awareness of that I should. Now, I'm preaching to myself here, as, as, teaching to myself um, this morning. So in this passage, oh, let's see, we're, all right, we're at the end. In this passage, you can almost, under Paul's breath, hear the Jews saying, yeah, sick them, God, those nasty Gentiles. The, you know, some of the readers of this letter probably uh, last Sunday at potluck dinner was, were sitting next to Aunt Martha's pickled pig feet casserole, and they're saying, yeah, those Jews, they are nasty. You preach to them, Paul. You can almost hear them sanctimoniously saying this, you know, kind of getting that feel as, as Paul lists. These are the, he's attacking the Gentiles, those dogs. And we know that the, they thought that way. I mean, the, the, the gal at Jesus at the table says, you know, remember the, the lady who said, uh, Lord, give me some of that. Uh, and, and what did he, Jesus said, no, it's only for Israel. And he's, yes, but the dogs get the crumbs on the, that fall from the table. You know, Jesus commend, setting her up to commend her for her great faith. Um, it's all through the New Testament that that is the attitude toward the Gentiles. I mean, all through, they are um, godless. And um, so you kind of get this feel. And then next week, we're going to hear uh, Paul shift his focus to the Jews and by extension to the church, uh, and just and how we're just as guilty or worse, and we're more, you could argue we're much more wicked because we add to the list hypocrisy. We, we think we're pretty good, right? We don't, we don't do those detestable sins of homosexuality or whatever. Um, we think we, we're better than the outsiders. So that will be next week. I think Eric is up next week. And this went much quicker than I thought it was. But concluding, let me, um, since I'm at the end of the passage, let me offer a few suggestions, um, if I may. And then I'll open it for Q&A or comments and, or fellowship. So 
I would encourage, as, as I've been encouraged from time to time, I think it's a great practice to sit down and read the book of Romans in one sitting out loud like it was a letter to Christ Covenant Church or to you or to Christ Covenant Church. I mean, suppose Dorothy wrote me a letter uh, and, you know, a long letter, and I broke it into verses. And I said, uh, you know, and don't forget to put the cat out or something. That, that's, verse, that's verse 18. And I can analyze it, slice it, and dice it. Did you mean the cat? Are you saying that because I failed to put the cat out one time? Or are you saying that because, uh, you know, you know how we, we do with Scripture. But if we just read the letter like it's a personal letter to you, it's, it's just a totally different experience. Read the letter like it is Paul's letter to you or to the church, to Christ's covenant. So that's one suggestion. <clears throat> the other thing is I would challenge you uh, to, and this is true with any scripture, um, I basically got this from John MacArthur, read the passage you want to learn or memorize every day for 30 days mm-hmm. so, and then repeat it. And it's amazing. I, I put it on audio, and every day, I, I haven't done it in a few years, but in January, first month of the year, I would play Romans 1. On the, and, and at very minimum, if I couldn't sit and read it out loud, I had it on my audio riding around town. And toward the end of the month, I would, I would get to the point where I could say it with the, the audio. It, those verses became so familiar. By day 20, it's like I can quote it. In, in my mind now, I can't do that now. Um, I'm not Ruth. I remember, Ruth had the whole book of Me- Romans memorized and a lot of other books. But um, if you do that, if you start in January, uh, you'll go through the first 12 books of Romans. And really, 1 through 11 is where the um, imper- indicatives are, and then the 12 through. So I, I would not say that 12 and that's where we apply what we've learned. In fact, I love in verse in, in chapter 12 where Paul says, in view of God's mercies. It's only in the NIV it's said that way. But he looked look back to all this indicative, and that will help you live the imperative and how we apply it. But if you do that, you, you'd obviously go, you might need to go, well, there's 16 books, so you'd have to go into April to do it if you did Romans. But you get my point. So... Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I mean chapters. If you, like January, you do Romans 1, chapter 1. February, you do Romans chapter 2. And you don't have to wait till January. You can start in uh, October. <clears throat> so the other thing, just to encourage you, is I hope that you will, with, with our study of Romans, that you will take the time to bask in your wretchedness. Um. Now, that sounds weird, I know, but in our culture, the, we do not have a sense of our sin nearly like we should. Take the time to really percolate in it. Just, and that is the key. You will not find the gospel sweet unless you find your sin, um, the depth of your sin. And that's the idea here. Uh, back in 2006, I was a part of BSF, and that, that year... We studied Romans, and it drove me crazy. Our leader kept apologizing. We came come to this passage, and you'll hear it next week and probably the next week, if not next three weeks. We'll still be in this broad section of Paul is laying the foundation of our, the sinfulness, 
the state of man. And it, it, it frustrated me that he kept apologizing. Oh, I know this is rough, but it's going to get better. Every, every, at the end of every lecture, he'd say, just hang in there. I know this is hard. Paul meant for it to be hard because we don't easily get the depth of our sin. So um, let it marinate, this, this, these passages. All right, so... Yeah, we can put the next slide. We're done. Uh, I'm done. But uh, So we have more time than I thought we would for questions, comments, or if we are done, we can go to fellowship. So first, anybody have any comments or questions with any of this? Hold on a second, Steve. Okay. All right. Uh, you were talking about the situation where someone would commit only one sin during their whole life and uh, that would be enough to condemn them. But the truth is we sin because we have a sin nature and therefore we will not commit only one sin in our whole life. Uh, So it's the sin nature that has to be changed in order for us to avoid all of the other sins that are expressions of that nature. Yes. Thank you, Steve. That's a great point. Um, And that's where Romans 5 is going to come into play. When we get to Romans 5, we're going to talk about original sin and how uh, that nature is uh, back to Magnolia that my little one-year-old was born in sin. And we all are. And that nature uh, is... uh, we would be um, out of the gate where uh, that nature is there. That, that's a good point. It's not just, and of course, we've, we've done our own sinning, um, and, and my heart has come up with sins that my hands haven't yet figured out how to do. Um, in our heart, we, we have that nature, and that's, what, that's a, uh, damnable in itself. So that's a great point. All right, anything? If we don't have anything else, we're going to let you have uh, 30 minutes of fellowship and uh, get your kids at 1030. I think uh, Eric is up next week, and we will look into the uh, chapter, first half of chapter 2. Oh, yeah, this is a quote from, I think, um, well, Keller used to quote it a lot, but he got it from Jack Miller. Um, Cheer up, sinner, you're worse than you think. Uh, kind of the theme this morning. All right. Thanks for coming, and I'll be back. Uh, actually, I'm, I think I'm, next time I'm on, on up is for uh, Romans 5. So uh, appreciate it.